Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect Pacific Northwest authors with new listeners and provide advice for inspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the authors of the Pacific Northwest. And this week, we have a very prolific author that I've been waiting for a while to get on the podcast. And um, her name is Bartley Kirshner. Did I say it right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so Marty, say hello to the listeners. Well, hello, listeners. I'm so excited to be speaking with Vicki and speaking with you. Oh, well, we, we have tried to get, um, our scheduling has been a little off, and but we finally got you on the podcast, and there's quite a bit we get to discuss. Um, but first, tell us what state in the Pacific Northwest you're living. Well, I now live in Pacific Northwest in Washington, the state of Washington, and I have lived here for a good long time, first in Seattle, and then recently I have moved to Bellingham, Washington, oh. also a very lovely city. Oh, Bellingham is very beautiful, and you so you moved out of the metro Seattle area, and you've moved kind of up north to maybe quieter place, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's great for writers. Actually, all of Pacific Northwest, I think, is great for writers because of the rain and yeah. You know, there's just something about it. The solitude and the rain is good for the it, writers. It really is truly that. Now, everybody that's not from the Pacific Northwest that thinks they want to come and move here, listen to what we're saying. It does rain quite a bit. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to be comfortable staying indoors for quite a bit of the winter time. And I do agree with you. That's why I think we have such great prolific authors in the Pacific Northwest because we're indoors a lot. <laughs> Absolutely, and also overcast a lot, which makes it uh, good for mystery writers. You know, yes. I mean, you can come up with all sorts of mysterious plots. Oh, we do. And, you know, I also believe we have quite a few romance writers. I haven't correlated that with the weather, but I do believe <laughs> it has something to do with being indoors a lot. <laughs> so so, um, so you have quite a prolific portfolio of writing, and it spans again um, along some genres. So. For our listeners that don't know you, because I did some research on you, so I know a little bit about you, but share with us, um, first, you have um, seven or 11 books, correct, that are published? Exactly. I have 11 published books, seven are novels, and four are cookbooks. And um, among the seven novels, I have various genres, which makes it even more complicated and interesting. Uh I have done literary novels. I have done... um, historical novels and now finally I'm doing mystery novels so there's a variety of genres involved here so what came first uh cookbooks or your literary novels um say that again I'm sorry I missed the question first what came first when you were writing oh oh, wonderful question yes I the question what came first was cookbooks. And this is because I actually made a transition from a very technical career. I used to work for IBM, Mm -hmm. working as a software engineer. Mm -hmm. Now, you you don't go from software engineering (laughs) to creative writing, writing literary novels in in a short time. You just don't. And I didn't think I could do that. So my intermediate step was writing cookbooks. And I loved cooking then. I still love cooking. So that was a very wonderful transition. Now, I'm not saying writing cookbooks are easy. They are not. They're very, very hard work. 
But for me, that intermediate step really helped. Yeah, and it's very technical. So cookbooks are very technical, whereas where you came from your technical background, I can see that transition very well. Yes, exactly. The cookbooks are technical. They're methodical, step by step. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be exactly right. Yeah. So when you are your cookbooks in the Indian cuisine only, or did you branch out to other cuisines? Mine are actually a variety of things. I had done a lot of traveling at that point. Mm -hmm. So my cookbooks are started out with an Indian cookbook, Healthy Cuisine of India. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is called Indian Inspired. And Mm -hmm. that was uh, Indian spicing and techniques combined Mm -hmm. with ingredients from all over the world. For example, just to give you a short example, I had something called Thai tortellini. So I use like Indian or Thai sauces with Italian pastas and it works very well. Oh, fantastic. Oh, I'm going to have to find your books because I am very much in love with Indian food and Thai food. Um, Almost all ethnic foods. I I absolutely adore ethnic food and I try to dabble in cooking. I do have my own spice tin. I I bought myself an Indian spice tin and I fill it up with Indian spices and I get them replenished. You have to order them all online, of course. Oh, yes. And the other thing is that I also have done, my next two books are vegetarian. One is called The Vegetarian, The Bold Vegetarian. And that's really vegetarian cooking using techniques and ingredients, not only from India, but from all over the world. And my fourth book was Vegetarian Burgers. And at that time, there are not many vegetarian burger book now there are many but mm-hmm. at that time mine was one of the first ones oh that's fantastic so, i love it and you know oh, yeah vegetarian book, so i i go back and forth I, i'm always trying to eat very healthy and i do eat mostly vegetarian or vegan um and so when i started to cook for the first time vegetarian burgers i haven't found i didn't find a recipe that i really loved it didn't you know hold together so i'm gonna have to get your cookbook so i can see those yes yeah, not only I mentioned how to make the vegetarian burgers, but how to serve them. Oh. And I use many different ingredients to make the burgers, like there'll be grains, there'll be nuts, there'll be vegetables. So it's a variety of things involved, really. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. So listeners, if you're going along the healthy path like I am, um, definitely get in and find, I'll have on the show notes, um, uh, her website so that you can jump on and, and find the cookbooks as well. And I think that's fascinating. And I love the fact that you started with the cookbooks and then you moved into, was it historical fiction was your next uh, no, actually, it was more like literary commercial fiction. Okay. And because those are the kinds, well, what I write is what I, I mean, what I read is what I write. Yes. Uh-huh. And those are the types of books I used to read. And so my first novel, Shiva Dancing, was be considered general fiction or literary fiction. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and it was about an immigrant woman like myself who has to who has to make it in a different country, in a different world, mm-hmm. and how does she make her adjustments? What are her problems? Mm-hmm. And there's a there's an involved plot and story in there. Now, I did two or three, I, actually three novels like that, which would be considered literary commercial novels. So mm-hmm. Shiva Dancing, Sharmila's book, and this third one is called Darjeeling. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the fourth one was a little bit different. It was set not in India or U.S., but it was mostly set in Japan. Mm-hmm. And it's called Pastries, and it sounds like a cookbook, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's, again, a literary commercial novel, but set in Japan. And because at that time, I was very interested in Jap- Japan and Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So it was a book like that. And... Um, and so from there on, I moved on to writing a historical novel, and the title is Goddess of Fire. Mm-hmm. And that was set in India in the 17th century. And this is a time, the time of great transition. The British were coming and settling themselves in India as traders. Mm-hmm. And so that was an interesting period, and I wrote about that. The story of a woman who became very powerful and young village Indian girl who had no hopes in life, but mm. somehow she managed to mm. become somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, that's my mm. historical novel. I am very excited actually about The Goddess of Fire. I, I read and I'm working on historical fiction. That's where my genre is. Is um, I love to read historical fiction, but I also, that's my aspiring to write historical fiction. And so when I discovered you through doing research on authors of the Pacific Northwest, I was drawn to The Goddess of Fire and, and I have it on my short list to read so I can make sure that I can read it and because um, it sounds absolutely wonderful to me. Um, and so just recently you have another book in a series that is, has come out. You were telling me before we started recording, right? Yes. I have a new, I'm starting a new mystery novel series. And this is the first one that has come out. It's called Season of Sacrifice. And I'll read from it a little later. Mm-hmm. And this is the first one. And I'm actually working on the second one now. Uh, now, it's a lot of times people ask me, the, why are you writing a mystery novel? And I found that mystery novel, because I read mystery novels, but I found it really quite a challenge to write a mystery novel, to make it interesting from the for the reader from the beginning and have a mystery that really affects the whole community, changes everything, and you have to be really a, a, a reader of human emotions and human behavior. So it's quite a challenge and quite interesting for me to write histories. And I would think it would be very challenging too, because you have to also write in a way that others can see what's happening, but the characters don't know what's going on in some parts of it. So it's it's very challenging, I would think. Yes. And actually, as I was writing Season of Sacrifice, I didn't know who was the murderer. Oh. And actually, so then I began to wonder, I said, what will happen if I never find that? Oh, it would be great. And ultimately, I found, because I don't, I don't outline. Mm-hmm. I write. I write the way a reader would read, so I just keep writing one mm-hmm. sentence at a time. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that I found found the culprit. I'm glad that you mentioned that you don't outline because I'm struggling personally in my writing life between you know outlining and doing all the plotting and the planning and then writing or just straight writing. Um, you know, write through and then go through it. So I, I kind of go back and forth in between the two, and I haven't found what sticks for me quite yet. Um, I am going to be taking the whole month of November off from podcasting, recording, and producing to actually write because the podcast is over my life. (laughs) 
which is a good absolutely. But you know, NanoRimo starts in November, and I thought that would be a great reason to spend time writing. So hopefully, when we check back with me after November, we'll know if I'm actually going to be a plotter, a pantser, or how I'm going to do it because it's. I would be very curious because most people like to plot and plan ahead of time, and that's fine. I think it just depends on the individual. Mm -hmm. For me, it doesn't work that way. I just, I'm so. I'm just so free in my head. I just go wherever yeah. the characters want to go. Exactly. And I, ultimately, I have a story. Yeah, I feel that way too. I feel like I'm more productive when I don't have an outline to follow. And I can just write. Yeah, so, okay, fantastic. So I talk with my authors that come on here about the actual journey of publication for you. Um, and yeah. that's what this whole podcast was a genesis from, was me asking a lot of questions about publishing because it's dynamically changed over the years. And um, so for you, are you a traditional published with all your works? Or are you hybrid where you publish yours on your own? How, how has it been for you over the years? For me, from the beginning, I went for traditional publishing. Now, why traditional? Because I write to connect, and I found that traditional publishing gives me the biggest exposure I can expect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because as an author, as an author, as a person, you don't have access to the media or the reading public or the bookstores in a greater sense, or the libraries, the way a publisher does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is why I went to traditional publishing, which is much harder, because you have to be vetted at every step by the agent, then in the publishing house, all the author, all the editors, and all the salespeople have to like your books. It's not an easy job. It's not an easy path. But that's the path I have chosen, and I'm glad I have done that, and I'll stick with it as long as I can. Well, you're very fortunate that you have found that path and it's worked well for you because what I found with many of the independent authors and the routes that I've heard in the last few months as I've been doing the podcast is that you're right. It's not easy to get on that path. It's not easy to find that agent relationship because it really is truly an agent relationship that moves things forward. So, um, so what tips do you have for a young aspiring author like myself um, in the area of finding an agent moving forward with publishing? Well, my suggestion would be is to write as well as you can. Because regardless of what people think, they think, oh, you must know somebody or something. It didn't work for me that way. I always made sure I have something good. I have something relevant, something an agent might want before I even approached an agent. So I didn't waste their time because you get only one chance with an agent you have to have something really good. So I spend a lot of time making sure I have a good story, I know how to tell it, and then I approach an agent. And there are a lot of, now actually more and more, there are many conferences, many avenues of um, connecting with an agent. And sometimes you can just write to them, which I've done often, just write to them, um, send them a sample of your writing, and they might respond, and they might, oftentimes they respond that way. So uh, they are also looking for authors as much as you are looking for an agent. That's, that's absolutely fantastic advice. And I like the fact that you said they are looking for authors, but they're looking for very good quality authors. So don't send your first draft. <laughs> exactly. I think it, there comes a point, and absolutely you need a group. You 
teach group people do your work and they would say, you know, this is so good, this should be published. Mm-hmm. And then you know you're, you know, you're on the right path, you're getting closer because yeah. it has to be that. Yeah, and that's fantastic because you just brought in my very next group of questions. I love it. It's like you you knew where I was thinking. Support groups, I'm finding are incredibly relevant and imperative to a writer's success. So can you share with us you know, here in the Washington state, now that you're here, um, I like to collect ideas for support groups for others that may be in our area that they can visit or get to know or any online support groups that you might be involved in. Yes, there are plenty in Pacific Northwest. One way of finding these groups would be to go to a writer's conference. And oftentimes in a conference, they would have a bulletin board where you are asked to put your name if you're interested in joining a critique group, and that could help. And also, I have also to ask among your friends or ask at the library. Oftentimes, there are people who are looking for critique group partners. And I now have a online, very small online critique group. And we are not all in the same city. We don't have to meet face to face. But the group has been going on for a number of years. It's working really well. So you might find your partners somewhere else, you know, not necessarily in the same city that you are. But the main thing, I think, is that if you have a very supportive group where they are looking at your work critically, but at the same time, they're your friends. They're just, they're not, you know, tearing it down or anything like that. And you are doing the same thing for them, and it really works very well. So I highly recommend critique groups for everybody. Oh, thank I appreciate that. I like the fact that you have a support group that is online, that I yeah. like the idea of having an online group of people that I can trust that I support, that I support and they support me from different areas because I think it brings a different perspective. If for me, I feel like if I'm only working only with people in the Pacific Northwest, we're all going to be gray and grumpy in the wintertime. <laughs> That is so true. And actually, it's easier to give critique if you are not face-to-face. Sometimes people are much freer, much more open if they're not seeing you, your reaction. Sometimes you see somebody's reaction and you immediately say, no, I won't say anymore. That doesn't happen with an online group. And like you said, people coming from different backgrounds, from different weather patterns, it just makes it a whole lot richer for, uh, for everybody to be in. Yeah. And my listeners know that I work remote. I work my full-time job is home at remote. I become very comfortable with staying in my own home office, but I still am very active. We have to collaborate. I work in higher education. So it's very collaborative. I had to learn a whole skill set of, of articulating critique and support online as well as over the phone in a way you can't do face-to-face because face-to-face you're correct we can be more objective online than face-to-face but we also um we can hide too a little bit online (laughs) (laughs) and that's what i like about it my introvert tendencies love being online (laughs) and also you know it takes less time. Mm-hmm. If you have to meet face-to-face, you have to go to some place, you know, there's some kind of overhead involved. Online mm-hmm. does not have that overhead. You can critique any time, day or night. So True. that's also helpful. Yes, when it's convenient for you when you're not writing, right? 
exactly. <laughs> so share with us, share with me and the and our listeners, what's your inspiration and what keeps you motivated and going? So it's a two-part question. So what's your inspiration and also what keeps you motivated as an author? Because you're very pro- prolific, far more prolific than some of my authors I've had on so far. So you have some gems of wisdom I'm sure you can share with someone like myself. <laughs> Well, you know, to tell you this, to speak the truth, <clears throat> inspiration for me always comes from within. Mm-hmm. I have found if something external to me inspires me, that inspiration doesn't last very long. Somehow it just, just washes away and then you're left with mm-hmm. not much. Mm-hmm. So I have always tried to find inspiration from my inside myself. And I knew even when I was a child that someday I'd be a writer. Mm-hmm. I used to kind of sort of feel it in my body. So I knew that I'd be a writer and I had to keep up and I had, I was having a career in software and engineering. So mm-hmm. I couldn't do it right away, but that's okay. I just mm-hmm. kept my dream alive by mm-hmm. reading. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, the other thing is the, the mo- keep the motivation going. Writing itself is an inspiration, is a motivation. Mm-hmm. If you write often enough, then that will prompt you. And I find that's the way I keep going is because, you know, I always have a project going. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, if, I, if I'm at my desk or they, you know, regularly, then that seems to help also. Mm-hmm. Fantastic advice. And you're very inspiring to me because the fact that you mentioned you knew you were going to be an author when you were younger, um, but then, you know, you became a software engineer, which I'm sure you did very well, was a good job and everything. And you kept the dream alive, even though yes. you had your work going. That's where I'm at. I have, I have the dreams. I'm building the platform. I'm working slowly on the writing, but I still have my requirements in my job, which I love my job too. And so thank you for sharing that because I needed to hear that today (laughs) to keep the (laughs) And no matter what kind of a job you have, you find that you learn something that applies to writing. Like for Mm. my, in my case, a lot of discipline, the software is Mm. just discipline. And now I find that, that my writing life is easier because I'm disciplined Mm -hmm. and it would not have happened probably unless I had a job like that. Mm -hmm. So it all helps. Very true. Well, you know, I, I teach in the College of IT for a university, so I know exactly what you're talking about, about software <laughs> and discipline. Yes, because I have many students that can't grasp that concept as they're working on new programming languages. <laughs> yes. So, well, let me ask you this other question from doing some research on your website. Um, you've been granted awards, some fabulous awards, yes. but you've also been granted, so we'll talk about your awards a little bit, but also I want you to dive in a little little bit about how you knew about grants and how you've gone through to get grants for your writing because not all writers are aware that there's grants out there that they could possibly apply for. Well, uh, you have to keep up with grants and awards lists. Mm -hmm. And uh, now it's much easier because they're all on the internet Mm -hmm. and you can You can take a look what's available for Washington State residents or whatever state you are in. There are some grants. I know California has a lot of grants. Colorado has some grants. So every state has these grants, and you can find them on the Internet now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that you have to follow. Of course, you have to follow the application very carefully. You Mm -hmm. have to send them really good writing samples because they are highly, highly competitive. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's no easy answer to how you get a grant, but you keep applying 
and hopefully that someday will you know they'll notice your application see that your work is getting better or your work is, work is already good and you can get a grant have you but found the first it, thing is now go ahead i didn't mean to interrupt have you found it easier after you were awarded your first grant that you seem to have gotten notice for other grants. Did you feel like that? Because it's very, you promote it well on your website about your awards and grants. So do you feel that if you can maybe get one good solid grant or good award that you've applied for, it makes it easier moving forward? Well, it, it helps. It really influences the judges that you have got a grant. But to be honest, they really look at the application, the whole application to decide who they are going to give grants to. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's tough because I myself have been judges at these various mm-hmm. uh, grants and awards. Uh, you know, I have been that too. And I know how many good applicants are there. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to find. It's very difficult to sift through and just get just a few. And there's so many you wish you could give a grant to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just, there's just more and more writers and they're not that many grants. So it's really competitive. Yeah. And, it, and I think you're smart that you have been on the other end of it. Um, I know in my employment job, I love to help students get ready for um, interviews because I've sat on interview panels. I know what resumes should look like and I know how they should act in interviews and things like that. And for you, I think that's very smart. You know, on the other side of it, you get to give back to the community as judging for grants, but you also get an inside view of what is coming and how how they're judged. So that's very, very smart. <laughs> Absolutely. That knowledge is, I wish I had that knowledge when I was just applying and I didn't that. <laughs> Not then, but okay, yeah. You should it's, put together but, a workshop on grants for authors. That would be a really great topic you can write on. <laughs> yes. In fact, I uh, next time I go to Pacific Northwest Writers Conference, I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of submitting a proposal to do oh. one like that. How oh. do you How do you get a grant? How do you win an award? That's so important for a writer. Oh, it's and um, even a little thing really helps. They're very inspiring. They really make your day and weeks go much better. Well, if you do, if you definitely do the workshop, email me, let me know. I'll make sure I attend. Um, I haven't attended (laughs) any of the conferences yet in the Pacific Northwest. It is my goal in this next year to attend some because I've met authors all over. So now they're all asking me if I'm coming to conferences. <laughs> that is a great idea. You network, you learn so much from other presenters, and it's just a wonderful way to connect, actually. It, is. it really is. Well, let's set up the reading for our listeners. They, that My listeners know they get to listen to all of our, our publishing talk and writing talk, and then they get to listen to your story. So, um, Oh, yeah. So I will let you set the stage, share with us a little bit about your characters that you can share. I'm going to go on mute and let you do that part and um, be quiet so we don't hear my dogs barking in the background <laughs> and okay and then i'll close us out of the podcast okay i'll briefly read from my new book season of sacrifice now it's a story of a young brilliant scientist who dies in a street protest leaving behind clues for a private detective to solve and it's the first in the series, and it's my first mystery series. The story is set in Seattle, and many communities are represented, such as Russian, Tibetan, Indian, and, of course, Americans. 
My PI, the private detective I have in the book, is rather unusual. She's Indian-American, which means that she was born of Indian parents and came to the U.S. to go to school, a lot like me, but she, I'm not her. And among other disciplines, she studied criminology. And uh, she's adventurous, and she can work with people of different nationalities. And she works for a company called Detectives Unlimited, which is based in India, and so she works remotely from Seattle for this company. With that introduction, I'll now read from the first chapter. With the early morning summer breeze tickling the back of her neck, Maya Malik hurried toward the neighborhood bakery for pastries and a jolt of caffeine. Her eyes took in the well-kept Tudors, Dutch colonials, craftsmen bungalows, and occasional modern mansions that typified the Green Lake district of Seattle. Rounding the corner from half a block away, she spied a crowd of 10 or so people. Eyes closed and dressed in white, they overflowed the sidewalk in front of an imposing oyster gray house that loomed over the intersection. A rally of some sort? Her instinct as a private investigator demanded to know. Or a benefit event? No, they emitted a loud, harsh, and spooky chant in an unfamiliar tongue. Although she knew she had to get going, Maya approached and stood at a respectful distance behind the group. With her white top and matching pants, she blended in. Nobody would notice her, or so she hoped. A petite young woman stepped forward from the group, turning briefly to face the crowd. All but her eyes were shielded by a dazzling white shroud. A garland of white lilies encircled her neck. Chest vibrating, arms linked, the group arranged itself around her in a tight semicircle and continued chanting. An olive-skinned man of medium height with a hat slanted across his forehead nudged the omen forward. He wore a white jacket and dark wraparound sunglasses, even though the sunlight was feeble. There's something sinister about him. Watch him, a feeling in the gut suggested. Maya stood on her toes and glanced at him, trying not to be obvious. The young woman sank to her knees, whispered a few words to Sunglasses Man, and sent him a longing look as he bent over her like an executioner. The chanting continued, the chorus ascending and then descending, sounding cruel and evil. A second woman came forward, pivoted, and faced the assembly. Taller than the first, she was also dressed in a white shroud with a similar garland around her neck. Maya saw the woman's bright eyes above her veil, and those eyes looked familiar. They reminded her of Sylvie, a dedicated malaria research scientist and the sister of Maya's best friend. Sylvie was adopted from a Tibetan refugee camp in India when she was still a baby. Her bloodline could be traced to a Tibetan royal family. But Sylvie, who didn't have a political bone, wouldn't come to a street rally. She'd rather be cooked up in her research lab for a 12-hour day. And yet, Maya's chest tightened. She called out, Sylvie? The chanting stopped for an anxious moment. 
with a sweep of his hand, sunglasses man gave the second omen the go-ahead. The omen took a few shuffling mechanical steps, unsteadily assumed her place beside her companion, and gazed up at the mansion. With his thumbnail, sunglasses man ignited a pair of red-tipped wooden matches and handed one to each omen. After uttering a few instructions, he backed away to a safe distance. The women accepted the tiny, playful sparks as if in a trance. Don't, Maya screamed. In delicate, graceful strokes, the women drew the flickering matchsticks along their clothing, which must have been drenched with gasoline or another combustible fluid. Flames accompanied by an audible whooshing sound billowed, tattooed, and engulfed them, burned a dark red, and shriveled the lilies. Sunglasses men stood still at a distance. No, Maya shouted and blinked, still paying close attention. Both women screamed. The sound pierced Maya to the bone. She shoved through the human shield, but a man pushed her back, nearly knocking her to the ground. Stop, she yelled, now even more worked up. Her plea brought no reaction. She had left her cell phone in the car. She couldn't call 911. She tried to tear the jacket off a man in front of her, but he shook her off. This is a sacred ceremony, miss, he said in an edgy voice. She'd seen him before. She couldn't remember where. The 60-ish man with the boxer's nose. Ceremony, she asked, but received no reply. Her mind in a whirl, Maya stared at the burning women and again tried to get closer, but got shoved back. Arms extended, the women slumped forward. Sunglasses men motioned the members of the prayer group to move farther away. The group chanted louder now, obviously meant to distract, their white clothing appearing yellow in the glow of the flames. Her eyes teared, ears rang, and heart threatened to push up into her throat. In her 33 years, Maya had never seen anything remotely like this. Ritualistic suicides? They only occurred in places like Tunisia or Tibet, not in this sleeping Seattle neighborhood. She stumbled back and stood behind the chanters. The air boomed with the sound of her prayer. The tall man toppled onto her right. Her companion slumped forward. Mouth tasting bitter, insides churning, Maya imagined how they felt, dizzy, confused, and craving oxygen with unbearable heat gnawing on the flesh, their hope stolen. The prayer group's eerie chanting rose as though inviting more destruction. With her arms outstretched, Maya again tried to get closer to the women, to hear their last words, to say or do anything, to help ease their suffering, but the wave of heat pushed her back. There came a crackling sound. Sunglasses man glared at Maya and yelled a warning, yet the person who now stood next to her. A silver stick sliced the air, struck her elbow, and lowered and lower back with a sickening sound of metal on flesh and bone. Maya bit her lip, 
recoiled from the shooting pain and turned to face the attacker, but tripped and lost her balance. She stumbled against a maple tree on the sidewalk and grasped at a rough branch. The bark stripped her back, her ankle twisting beneath her, and she slid to a slit sitting position at the base of the tree. Our compact middle-aged man with a deep complexion and droopy eyelids stood over her. Jerk. She wanted to kick him. Balanced on a pair of metal crutches and clean-shaven, he was clad in a crispy white shirt and shorts, his right leg encased in a top-to-hip cast. Damn you. More curses welled up in her throat as she rose, but Maya didn't utter them, only managed to squeak out in her flustered said, Why? The man stood before her like a stern disciplinarian. What the hell do you think you're doing, miss? She noted the rapid delivery and the lilting Indian accent of a fellow countryman. You mustn't go any closer, hear me? Those two ladies sacrificed themselves to protest the Chinese atrocities in Tibet. Maya rubbed her elbow with her free hand, her twisted ankle now throbbing dully as she cast him a fiery look. I know the taller woman. He looked around nervously. We were members of the same meditation group. She sent me a text early this morning. It was her wish. Should she believe this man? Maya's voice rose above the chanting. This is insane. You're asking me to mind my own business? As a private investigator, I... The whining of his siren cut through the air. Maya looked up and took several steps back along the sidewalk. The chanting voices faded. The prayer group dispersed. The by now gathering pedestrians quickly stepped aside as a fire truck pulled up next to the burned bodies. Sunglasses man had slipped away from the crowd. Maya focused on the street, saw his back fast disappearing. Firemen in full gear charged from the truck. Several crouched over the bodies, extinguished the few lingering flames, and checked for vital signs. An ambulance screeched to a halt by the truck. So did two blue and white police squad cars, their light pulsing. I'm Officer Rand from the city, a uniformed policeman displaying his badge, announced to the onlookers. Please move back. He sealed off the area with yellow crime scene tape. Maya crossed the street to the opposite sidewalk. The man on crutches was there also. He stared at her, and she could read his unspoken thought. You're Indian, too? It would be natural for him to come to such a conclusion, since Maya had typical Indian features. Dark eyes dominating a honey-colored round face, a small forehead and bushy eyebrows. She was five feet four and wore a mid-length layered haircut, like many modern Indian women did. You know about the Chinese foreign minister who was visit, don't you? Said the man in a strained voice, pointing at the oyster gray mansion across the street. The criminal is staying there, his son's home, instead of at the Chinese consulate. The limo parked in front is his official car. It's all in this morning's newspaper. Maya appeared at the modern mansion, the tallest building in sight, the Chinese national flag, red strewn gold stars, 
fluttered above its roof. She was aware of the Chinese use red to symbolize passion, happiness, and revolution, as well as sacrifice. The black limousine parked in front had two small Chinese flags fluttering on short poles affixed to the mirrors. Those flags in the car indicated it was indeed the temporary home of a dignitary from Beijing. Paramedics wrapped the blackened bodies in white sheets, loaded them onto a pair of gurneys, and slid them onto the back of the ambulance and sped away. A few people stepped forward, bent down, and touched the ashen dust in a gesture of respect. Our two sisters are so brave, the man on crutches mumbled. We're so brave. They're no longer brave. They're no longer anything at all. The unbearable stench. Thick smoke and ashes were proof. Several bystanders wiped their eyes, as did Maya. Somewhere a bird made an intermittent chirping noise. It couldn't have been Sylvie. A light of devotion in his gaze, the veins of his throat bulging, the man on crutches said out loud, May our beloved sisters find peace. May, may we keep them in our hearts forever. May we all be kind to one another. Maya sensed movement around her. With gloved hands, a police officer started taking measurements of the area. Another police officer had begun gathering bystanders for interviews. He didn't notice Maya standing off to the side. A second look at him and Maya turned to stone. Detective Justin Stevenson of SPD, the cool cop, tall, lanky, and handsome, blue eyes turning indigo in the intensity of the situation, a former lover who had come close to being Mr. Wright until he ditched her. As an eyewitness, shouldn't she speak with him about this bizarre and violent incident? Then as she glanced at her watch, an alarm bell went off in her head. She had already canceled the appointment with her client once before due to a schedule mix-up. She couldn't afford to cancel again. She needed the funds. Bending to touch her swollen ankle, burning with pain, she, feel that she felt the need to sit down. Another glance at Justin Stevenson, and she decided to call him from the privacy of her car when her senses were sharper. Thank you. Oh, Marky, now I'm hooked. I need to know what's happening with Maya. <laughs> <laughs> now you have to read the book. <laughs> I will have to read the book, and I will write a review because we do that for each other, right? <laughs> yes, so. that would be so nice. I thank you very much if you do that. Oh, I really would appreciate that. And so, listeners, um, if you love what you heard and you're hooked about Maya and the what's going on with her down in Seattle, um, definitely get on our show notes, find um, the website, order the book and if you do read it please write a review reviews um help our authors um with everything so write a review if you're interested in the cooking books make sure you get those two and let her know that you've cooked some of her food <laughs> that's important as well <laughs> thank you so, so much well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and it, i do hope if you do the workshop in the future for one of the um the um 
seminars, let us know. And, and I'll definitely promote it with my authors and people that I know, and we'll be there for it. Thank you. You're giving me even more motivation to do that workshop. Oh, really? so. oh, good. Fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. Thank you, Vicky. This is wonderful. This is just wonderful. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hoped you loved hearing from the author as much as we did. If you did enjoy the author, make sure you find them on social media. Buy their book and write a review. Are you a published author and would like to be featured on the podcast? Visit us at our website to learn more. You can help support the production of this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Share the podcast with your friends. And most importantly, become a supporter. Supporters receive monthly bonus podcasts and a newsletter filled with tips from our authors. To find out more how to become a supporter, visit our website. And finally, I hope you always remember to enjoy the journey. Until next week, this is Vicki J. Carter saying goodbye.